ability to carry other people with you, have them experience how can you remove obstacles. I think this is so important in this role. That's the voice of Hartmut Ehrlich, CEO at Abivax, headquartered in Paris. Listen in to hear insights from Hartmut about leadership in biopharma and how Abivax is working to develop treatments modulating the body's natural immune system to treat patients with chronic inflammatory diseases, viral infections, and cancer. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm speaking with Hartmut Ehrlich, CEO of Abivax, headquartered in Paris. Welcome to BioBoss, Hartmut. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure. What led you to your role as CEO at Abivax? Well, maybe I should start by saying that I spent most of my professional career, and that means over 35 years, actually in large pharmaceutical uh, companies. And before Abivax, I was head of global research and development at Baxter Bioscience for almost 20 years where I managed a portfolio of over 50 programs in uh, non-clinical and clinical development, which then, after my departure from Baxter, was sold to Shire. And another year later, as you probably know, Shire was sold to, uh, to Takeda. And after such a long time in Big Pharma, and I had been with uh, Novartis before, I had been, that was actually uh, uh, before Novartis, so it was the old Sandoz. And then I also have been with, uh, with Eli Lilly uh, before, so I was really looking for a new challenge in a smaller company where decision-making process uh, processes are much less complex and shorter compared to, uh, to large pharma. And also, of course, having responsibility for all functions within the company, if you want. So Abivax was the right opportunity at the right time and exactly what I was looking for. And the only regret I have is that I did not take this decision to go too small earlier. When you had made that decision that you were at least going to consider moving to a smaller company, but hadn't yet decided which one, how, what was that process like? Or did the process suddenly present itself in the form of a call from the founder? Or, how did that play out? I was ready to move. But uh, the real move came about when I was approached by the founder of, uh, of Abivax. I got the infamous call from Paris to explore whether I would be interested in, uh, in leading the company. And the answer after looking uh, into this with a lot of due diligence was clearly a, a yes for me. So the picture you had formed of what it might be like to lead a smaller biopharma company, a growing biopharma company, versus the, what you had experienced at Baxter, that picture that you had, how accurate was that compared to what you experienced after you became CEO? I think I was uh, pretty much prepared for most of the elements that are 
an intrinsic uh, a part of the job. Of course, when you are working in a large company, you very often meet with, uh, with biotech CEOs, etc. And uh, from these discussions, you get a pretty good picture about uh, what is important, um, how are uh, the, the different views between large pharma and biotech on, uh, on some of the uh, activities. And actually, the biggest difference between the two jobs um, that I did not realize when I took the decision was the uh, constant need to be engaged with, uh, with investors, which, however, is something that I must say I really enjoy because it gives me and uh, the team members that, that are participating in these meetings uh, a fresh perspective on the company and what the view from the outside in through the through the investors uh, what is what is really important and that 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 was a learning that I really appreciated and that I still value uh, and you you can imagine after our uh, successful 130 million euro uh, capital raise I think this is an example of the kinds of activities that uh, are very specific for biotech companies and are an activity that I really enjoy. The uh, decision-making process or processes, especially in, uh, in, the, in a smaller company, that was something that I was, was really looking forward to. Um, and it didn't uh, uh, catch me by, uh, by surprise because I came to the job with the expectation that one of my key tasks is to find a resolution between different opinions in a, uh, in a management team and to work with the management team to sort out these, uh, these differences and find the best way uh, uh, forward to, uh, to the company. When you first made that decision, you wanted to lead Abivax, were you thinking to yourself anything like, maybe I can accomplish something here that I can't accomplish someplace else? Was there something in particular about Abivax that spoke to you and said, this is an unusually good fit? Abivax caters to my, to my preferences. We are a very small company. I mean, between employees and contractors, we are about 50 people. But that also entails that there's a strong commitment from our employees. And there's also strong support from our board and our investors, who all believe, actually, in the potential of, uh, of Obefazimod. When you're working for a big pharma company in some sense, Someone you've met perhaps socially says, oh, I, I think I understand what Hartmut does. He works for, and everybody knows the name of the company. When they don't know the name of the company and you say, uh, this is what I do, how do you explain what it is that you do each day to someone who says, what, what have you been up to? I am the CEO of a small Paris-based biotech company with a very promising drug candidate 
in phase three clinical trials for the treatment of patients with ulcerative colitis. So that's essentially the bare minimum. But then, of course, you typically have more time than you would normally have uh, in an elevator speech. So uh, as many people do not know what ulcerative colitis is, I can seize the opportunity to uh, sensibilize them uh, for this very, very debilitating disease. So I tell them that I'm sure that they know at least one or two people who suffer from this chronic inflammatory bowel disease, uh, but that patients do not talk about it. As we all know, the symptoms are very uh, cumbersome uh, for the uh, patient. But interestingly, once people know about ulcerative colitis or the sister disease, which is Crohn's disease, or we can also say the other side of the coin of inflammatory bowel disease, uh, people often find out that they have acquaintances, friends, colleagues, relatives suffering from it without them initially uh, uh, being uh, aware uh, that the other person indeed has this, uh, has this disease. So this is all part of, a, of an ongoing um, education about the disease and uh, creating an understanding uh, for, the, for the problems that people who are suffering from this disease are having. After that description, do you, do you think that the, I know it varies according to the person you're, to whom you're speaking, but do you think people picture you in a, in a lab? Do you think they picture you in a conference room giving orders? I mean, when you, when they try to like, locate you as the, as the CEO of a biopharma company, how do you get across what it is you do each day? The people that I'm typically talking to uh, are usually realizing uh, what the, the job of the CEO is about. And this is about bringing all the talent in the company together to strategically, essentially, align uh, the, uh, the forces that we have within the company uh, and so they realize that this is nothing that you can do on the side. This is uh, a full-time job working with the team, but also working uh, with the board, working with investors, uh, etc., which is clearly uh, the, uh, the essential part of my job. I've heard that described as storytelling, that, that the main job of a CEO is aligning forces, as you just described. But there's also this other component of telling the story. And I don't mean that in a fic fictional sense, of course, but it sounds like from what you said at the beginning that you enjoy talking with investors and telling them that story. Absolutely. And I think I wouldn't be good in my job if I, if I wouldn't enjoy this. And also, as this is such a necessity for me, I think I would take this a step forward and say, if I wouldn't enjoy this, I, I, I really wouldn't be uh, uh, suitable 
to uh, function in my role of, uh, of, of, of uh, CEO. When you are faced uh, with uh, bringing this, the story of the company, the story of the product, the story of the patients across to any kind of, of audience, whether these are investors, whether these are physicians that are interested in uh, participating in a, uh, in a clinical trial, whether this is your own team, storytelling is, is uh, really critical from my point of view so that your audience is getting the real essentials about what you are doing. And this is far better accomplished by providing examples, by providing stories than just uh, uh, presenting the facts. For example, the, uh, the mechanism of action of, uh, of ABX464, which goes into a lot of biology and biochemistry. And if you can bring this across in a way that even uh, complex mechanisms can be understood, especially from the way of where do they lead to? What does it mean to, uh, to, the, uh, to the patients, uh, for example? That is something, uh, from my point of view, that is essential in bringing a message across. In my experience, the people that I've met who have become biopharma CEOs often come from big pharma or, or other kinds, other places where they were uh, in a more secure environment. <laughs> and you can find secure in lots of different ways. And it occurs to me, working alongside some of these folks, that this is a very hard way to make a living because the chances of success are not high. There are so many people with trying new ideas. It's almost by, by definition, it's, it's an extremely difficult task. So my question is, why? Why does one choose to do something so hard? That's a very interesting question that I must admit I, I never asked myself. For me, it has a lot to do with leadership. And uh, I really enjoy leading a, uh, a very competent group of people, experts in the field, and by the way, my, my mantra is that every single uh, individual in my leadership team for his specific area of expertise has to be better than I am in this, in this uh, uh, particular area to play uh, um, the, uh, the role that I'm expecting from these, from these individuals. So I think for me, it's, uh, an interesting, uh, leadership, uh, a challenge. It has to do with, uh, not being afraid of, uh, having to deal with, uh, complexity, and uh, around the leadership, then again, here, uh, having a personality that is actually um, uh, characterized by driving transparency uh, in the team 
and as a consequence, open discussion in order to best to get the uh, the best outcome uh, for the organization. And that also means that there is an overriding uh, principle to me that uh, communication is absolutely critical uh, for the success of the organization. And that means uh, for my own uh, uh, personal success. I believe, uh, and uh, uh, this is something that is also important when you ask uh, uh, what, what really counts, leading by example and being authentic is absolutely uh, important because I see um, the team and myself together trying to, as I mentioned, to get to the best outcome for the company and that can only be accomplished if I trust my team and if I'm not afraid of really being authentic when I interact with the team and uh, um, really driving the team to, uh, to full transparency. I would add to this, I think, yeah, lack of fear. Uh, I would say um, people who are not very uh, optimistic, for them there is uh, really not much uh, of a role in leading a company, as you said, in this, uh, in this space. Because if you look what the chances are for you to ever be able to participate in a, in a successful development program, that, and you know that very well, I suppose, these, these chances are actually relatively slim. So even more so, um, that is a very rewarding factor uh, in the team driving a promising compound into the last stage of uh, clinical development, phase three, and then collecting the data and uh, applying for registration this is actually very, very motivating uh, for the team. But if you are a person for whom the glass is half empty, that may pose a uh, substantial hurdle in being successful in this uh, role. Because as we all know, positive uh, uh, energy, the ability to, uh, to carry other people with you, uh, to uh, have them experience how can you remove obstacles, etc. I think this is so important in this role. I know just from reading a little bit about your background that you are a physician. Hey, did you go through anything that was like that transition from helping an individual person in a remarkable way to potentially helping a lot of people in a remarkable way? The idea to provide new therapies for patients who currently are basically left alone with the disease is so rewarding. And of course, I had this previously in, uh, in my life. For example, when at Baxter we introduced the first recombinant and then the second recombinant factor eight product for patients with, uh, with hemophilia. 
And of course, these were products because uh, um, they were not made with, uh, with any kind of, uh, of human uh, ingredients that presented a very different level of, uh, of safety uh, for the patients that uh, this is something that, from my point of view, uh, attracts me more than treating individual patients. Providing new um, or improved, and improved can mean efficacy, improved can mean safety, as I, as I mentioned, or improved uh, products uh, to the patients, that actually take uh, take away their uh, major fears. In the case that I just mentioned, it was clearly the fear of uh, being infected with uh, with uh, viral diseases, whatever. Um, when uh, patients were treated with uh, with plasma derived products, as we know from the uh, from the eighties. So that this evolution uh, to then recombinant uh, uh, products was really beautiful to see from the point of view what it did for patients. Can you recall when you were eight or nine or ten? This did you have any kind of self-image that you can remember now about what you wanted to be as a as an adult? Maybe perhaps what you thought your parents thought you should do. And does that have anything to do with what you're doing now professionally? I was not really following uh, a peculiar lead at this, uh, at this particular age. So I can remember then when I was 15 or 16 and uh, in the, la in the uh, sort of last years of high school, that that was the time when I started to seriously consider becoming a uh, physician. This was then what I, what I wanted to uh, accomplish. If you allow me, I give you a very personal uh, vignette here. I was always a good student in school, but I wasn't uh, uh, sort of the, the absolute uh, top. And so my uh, grade point average at the time was certainly not sufficient to uh, go directly to, to medical school after I uh, received my high, my high school diploma. Therefore, I decided in the last year of, uh, of high school to actually not go for the final exams, but go for re go uh, uh, ask to be put a year back in uh, in school, so I had another shot at my grades. And uh, so, uh, uh, as uh, as it happened, I was I was very lucky because there was a lot of appreciation for this uh, from my teachers. In the end, I got the grade point average that I needed and uh, was able to go straight to medical school after my, uh, my high school uh, diploma. That squares with my image of what it takes to be a successful CEO in some ways in biopharma. I would call it not, not intentionally referring to religious idea, but a messianic principle. You have to believe in a long-term possibility. 
I fully agree with you. And I think it is also really critical at certain uh, stages of your life to take certain risks. Nobody could guarantee to me that this would uh, that this would be successful this approach to step back uh, one year in uh, high school and uh, actually there were several people that told me why, why did you do it uh, why did you not uh, do what most of the people did who were in a similar situation they graduated and then had to deal with a waiting list for, for medical school for uh, about five or six years. I saw the opportunity. I figured it's entirely upon me and, of course, uh, on, uh, on my teachers. I realized that uh, risk-taking is an, is an essential part of, of life. And if you are a person who is not afraid of taking risks, then this is really the right path forward. And as you could see, I ended up as a CEO. When you're trying to give the very short, defined, structured description of what Abivax is, how do you like to answer that when someone says, who is Abivax, what do you say? We are a French biotech company founded in 2013 and listed at the Euronext Stock Exchange in Paris since 2015. We have a, a small but very dedicated team of roughly 50 employees and collaborators and are supported by top-tier U.S. and European investors. Why is it that patients need something that you hope to be able to deliver to them? Is what, what is the gap? The gap is based on the, on the spectrum of, uh, of current treatments. Inflammatory bowel disease, whether we talk about Crohn's or whether we talk about ulcerative colitis, is a, um, uh, is a, is a disease that massively impacts the patients. And uh, whereas there were relatively few treatments uh, that provided some kind of amelioration of symptoms uh, before the advent of uh, what we now call advanced therapies, monoclonal antibodies, JAK inhibitors, uh, S1P inhibitors, etc., the fact is that patients with this disease, there is no cure. These, with, with what we know today, we simply cannot cure the disease. So then you ask yourself, what is the situation about the patients if they take state-of-the-art uh, state uh, therapies? And then you realize that treatments that have been introduced since the early 2000s with Umira and... Uh, and Tuvio, Stellara, and others, you realize that these treatments bring something between, I would say, 10 and 20% of the patients into a remission status within eight weeks of taking the product. But that only, and, and that may be surprising that the percentages are, are relatively low, 
But uh, this is basically sort of the initial uh, phase of the treatment, and you learn do patients respond to this treatment even if they don't get to a remission. And uh, therefore, the uh, critical step is when you continue treatment then to see that after one year you have as many patients in clinical remission. And clinical remission means almost complete absence of, uh, of symptoms and also a clean endoscopy. Really, patients will, will tell you not only how well they, 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 they tolerate the treatment, but also how they benefit from the efficacy because this is something that is, of course, very important, that the, the key symptoms, and the key symptoms are related to many, many stools that these patients have per day, and also to the blood that is uh, often in the stools, and the consequences from that, they typically uh, get uh, weaker and, uh, and weaker, and patients that feel well on treatment, that is what we are, what we are trying to, uh, to accomplish. And so we have been seeing, and this is data that we were able to uh, publish uh, last year in uh, September in the, in the Lancet Gastroenterology and, and Hepatology, which is a very, very reputable uh, journal, where we uh, published our data that we bring essentially 66% of the patients that start uh, long-term treatment, or as we call it, maintenance, after, uh, after eight weeks. At the end of the first year, roughly uh, two-thirds of the patients, 65 66% of the patients are in clinical remission. This is not seen with most of the, uh, the other drugs where you typically have remission rates uh, after one year between 20 and, and 40%. And you see this with patients if therapies don't work because then they get on the uh, next version of advanced therapy and then maybe on a uh, third version but they are never really recovering from the symptoms of the disease. And often the only option, treatment option that is left for the treating physicians is actually to recommend colectomy, which, as you know, then brings its own sequence of issues related to the stoma, etc., etc. So what we want to do is basically enable as many patients as possible to, uh, to really enjoy their lives, having a high quality of life, because they are not basically impacted by the severe nature of the disease. The clinical data so far look, looks very promising. So for us, the, uh, the job is now to uh, complete the phase three program and see that we can get the product to the patients that need it as quickly as possible. And what is it about the mechanism of action that gives you hope that you can bring this, this relief? It is a new mechanism of action. 
Now, that, of course, is not the only thing uh, that counts. But when patients have been uh, treated with antibodies against, uh, let me say, tumor necrosis factor alpha, like, like Humira, or the, the, uh, the anti-integrin antibody, etc., when you, when you deal with monoclonal antibodies, you're shutting down, you're always shutting down one pathway completely. Um, and this is very, very different for, uh, for ABX464 because, and this was not engineered by us, this was discovered while we were working through the, uh, the mechanism of action. What obefazimod actually does, it leads, and I, I save you the, uh, the biochemical and biological details, Although this is, this is a very, very uh, interesting uh, uh, process, but it leads to the generation of a small microRNA that is called MIR124. And I really want to use language as simple as possible. So what do microRNAs do in general? And, and just on the side, there are more than a thousand uh, microRNAs known. And they all have very specific function. And this is determined by, by their structure. And structure determines what molecules they are binding to. For MIR124, for the microRNA that is heavily upregulated in, uh, in our case, microRNAs actually bind to messenger RNAs. And you know messenger RNAs are bringing the genetic information from the nucleus to the cytoplasm where protein synthesis takes place. And this protein synthesis is impacted by uh, microRNAs in general, and specifically the synthesis of uh, a number of proteins involved in inflammatory reactions or uh, processes is specifically inhibited by MIR124. It binds to what we call the target genes or the target mRNAs and prevents the translation from RNA into a protein on the sides of, uh, of the ribosomes. And this means that the effector molecules, which are responsible for the symptoms in these patients, are reduced from the point of view of uh, them being being generated. So we don't use a hammer to block uh, one uh, particular pathway or one molecule. We use a broader approach and we compare it with a car where actually when you brake, uh, you, you really better apply the brake to, uh, to all four wheels instead of just one, uh, one or two, because the consequences can be, can be very dangerous. So we are not reducing, like this is the case for, uh, for monoclonal antibodies, we are not reducing the uh, molecular targets by 100%. This you can accomplish with, uh, with monoclonals. We are typically reducing them and just to name a couple of examples, IL-17, IL-23, IL-6, we are reducing them 
to the level that you find normally in patients. And we consider this is very, very important, not only from the point of view of efficacy, but also from the point of view of uh, safety. Because if you block a molecule to 100%, uh, tumor necrosis factor, IL-6, uh, these molecules don't only have bad consequences. These are molecules that were initially generated in the body to be helping with host defense and other processes. And we don't want to shut this down completely because then you get to uh, potential uh, side effects like immunosuppression, which then can lead to uh, opportunistic viruses, for example, to grow. So the mechanism of action as we see it through, I would say, the moderate downregulation of several of the uh, key cytokines that trigger uh, chronic inflammation, this really is important for us and we believe has a, has a major impact on the uh, clinical picture that we are seeing in, in patients and I'm glad to say that in all the patients that we have been treating so far, which is more than a thousand out of which more than uh, 200 for longer than one year, we have not seen any imbalances between placebo group and active group when it comes to, for example, opportunistic infections. And actually, we have not seen any kind of uh, unlimited growth of uh, viruses or bacteria as you would expect in, uh, in sepsis. So that validates, this safety finding validates our conclusions from the mechanism of action on uh, why obefazimod is such an effective but also relatively safe molecule. How does the pipeline express your vision for Abivax? The good news is that many of these products, and that goes for the uh, monoclonal antibodies when they were discovered first in the or, or used first in the early 2000s, but also uh, other molecules like JAK inhibitors, um, as many of the processes. Uh, the, the intracellular processes in patients that lead to chronic inflammation, as many of these are very similar between very different diseases, like on one hand, inflammatory bowel, uh, especially ulcerative colitis, almost exclusively impacting uh, the bowel, whereas other chronic inflammatory processes like the ones that are taking place in the synovia, in the specific lining uh, of, the, uh, of the joints, leading to a number of different forms of arthritis or other chronic inflammatory diseases, they express themselves typically very differently. But because the underlying processes, as I mentioned, are very similar, molecules in this space typically can treat a number of different diseases that also have different anatomic, uh, uh, anatomic uh, locations. I mean, 
if you have joint disease, that's uh, by definition very, very different from uh, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, for example. So, and this is exactly the interesting question uh, around obefazimod now, because the first indication, and that was relatively clear uh, to begin with, we explored was ulcerative colitis. It worked from uh, the phase 2A study uh, on when we went into patients. We saw the positive effects uh, on the patients. But that then also led to us asking the question, of course, which other indications should we be tackling? So, um, of course, most of the products that work in ulcerative colitis also work in Crohn's. We had planned... A, uh, a development plan for uh, for Crohn that would start like we did it in ulcerative colitis with a small phase 2A study, look for some kind of evidence of efficacy, and then go into a larger study. However, this will will uh, will even the small study will cost us about a year and a half uh, during the uh, the development. And so our, our KOLs, and that's another very important point that you are working with KOLs who, uh, who are really interested in the product and who, who want to help you develop this product because, as we all know, there are so many pitfalls potentially in, uh, in development. But uh, here, clearly, they told us in no uncertain terms that we should skip the 2A program for Crohn's uh, because the mechanism of disease propagation in Crohn's is very similar to the one uh, in, in ulcerative colitis. And also because, as I mentioned before, many products that work in one disease work in the, in the uh, other as well. But that also brings with it a, uh, a certain crux. We have been doing this small study because it was not a bowel disease study, but a rheumatoid arthritis phase 2A study, where we saw ABX464 also working, so that now we are dealing at least with three indications that are very interesting uh, from our point of view to tackle. But here we have to now focus on, uh, on the realities and focus is, is absolutely important during the development uh, process of any drug. And for us, the need to focus is even more obvious because programs, end-stage programs, so uh, phase 2B3 programs or, or phase 3 programs, in these indications, because you need to treat something between 1,000 and uh, 1,500 uh, patients. They come with a substantial price tag. So we just completed a capital raise that I mentioned, so this will bring us much, much closer to our goal. But in addition, we are also trying to, uh, to uh, acquire uh, funds that help us looking into the other indications, not only into ulcerative colitis that we are focusing about. And so our main discussion and the main vision for the company is by the fall, um, have 
uh, ideas or even implemented um, other ideas to uh, to collect money, whether this is licensing out the molecule in uh, in specific geographies for AVX four six four. We are thinking, for example, about Japan, which would bring in revenues, but really to generate the the money that we need in order not to only develop ulcerative colitis, but also at least Crohn's disease uh, alongside the uh, the ulcerative colitis development plan. And that's something that we want to clarify where we are and how far we can go before the year is over. What I see Obefazimod can uh, achieve is that uh, it will put Abivax in a position where we can provide a safe and especially long-term efficient treatment to many ulcerative colitis patients in need. I'm not saying to everyone, but the numbers that I was providing before, I think pretty much uh, speak for themselves. And this is especially in the situation, the current uh, situation of patients is that many of them do not respond or actually stop responding after a certain amount of time to available therapies that uh, are currently uh, sort of part of the therapeutic armamentarium of the gastroenterologists. It is often very lengthy uh, for these patients to find a treatment that works, if any. And uh, this means pain, stool urgency, bloody stools, anemia, malaise, fatigue, water, uh, upper gastrointestinal pain, what all uh, uh, goes with this. So therefore, for us to bring more patients into uh, clinical remission, Patients that then can bank on this remission to uh, persist for a, uh, for a substantial uh, amount of time. And for most of the patients that are in remission after one year, we now have data that uh, is telling us that this outcome is very similar after two years of treatment. Uh, and then also as you go further from our 2A study, we have some very encouraging uh, data on patients that are treated now for, uh, for more than four years and who are still enjoying the benefit of Obefazimod. And this is what we want to basically transform these patients who are suffering from a debilitating disease by taking one pill a day, that they are relieved from the symptoms for a long, long period of uh, time. And in the end, hopefully, will not need to go through colectomy. Harper, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. You're very welcome, John. As I spoke with Hartmut Ehrlich about leadership, I heard a blend of experience gained in management at big pharmaceutical organizations linked to Hartmut's firsthand insights about what's essential for a CEO to successfully lead a growing biopharma company. As someone who works with biopharma founders and CEOs to help uncover the authentic story and articulate the aligned brand, I am attuned to Hartwood's focus on transparency and authenticity 
SEC's an open discussion with colleagues, investors, and key opinion leaders to deliver the best outcomes for patients and for the company. Hartmut goes on to note that authenticity is based on trust. His willingness to trust the contributions of others in open discussions and, importantly, to trust himself to be genuine. And in keeping with the promise of open communication, it makes sense to me that Hartmut enjoys his interaction with investors because he says the process gives him and his team members a fresh perspective on the company. I'm also in sync with Hartmut's belief that storytelling is at the heart of his role as CEO. As he says, storytelling versus compiling a list of facts enables Hartmut to engage his audience with essential qualities that differentiate his company's approach from others. This view about the primacy of storytelling supports research suggesting stories resonate with audiences because of the ability to place oneself within the action and experience potential outcomes. Another of Hartmut's views about leadership is his conviction that positive energy flows from and to the CEO in a successful biopharma company. As Hartmut puts it, this can-do energy provides the ability to carry other people along with a leader, to collectively remove obstacles and advance the company's work. This way of thinking ties into Hartmut's understanding that optimism is closely related to courage. In his words, a defining quality of leadership is the lack of fear. Hartmut is discerning about how these ideas about authenticity and communication play out in real-world decision-making. He describes the work of a CEO not in terms of looking for consensus, but as finding a resolution between different opinions and working to sort out differences to find the best way forward. At the end of our conversations, when Hartmut describes what it's like for patients who are living with diseases his company is working to help treat, I had a clear understanding of why Hartmut chose to lead a biopharma company. That's one of the attractions, for me, of working in biopharma. The sense that challenges are formidable, but that's because the need is great. I'm John Simbley. You're listening to BioBoss.